feeling of having wings on your back is often stated by pilots. You are now the controlling force of that glider. It's not that you're manipulating a stick or you're manipulating a handle. You're manip manipulating your entire body to control the glider. Moving your whole body gives you such a unique direct feel to the wing. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Hello and thank you for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here with you for another super exciting episode. Now today we'll be jumping out of the cockpit of the sailplane and stretching out under the wings to experience soaring in a whole different way. Our producer, Mitch Thompson, is going to be catching up with sailplane pilot and hang glider pilot, Ian Brubaker. Mitch will find out why Ian chooses to spend most of his soaring time under the wings of a hang glider and not only catching thermals, but Ian is doing some aerobatics as well. Now, Ian has been a pilot since 2006, so he has a lot of adventures and stories to share with us. And don't go anywhere after we hear his story, because we have another great segment from The Soaring Master. Now, Sergio is going to share with us five ways we can improve our soaring. But right now, let's join Mitch and Ian on Soaring the Sky. Hey, Ian. Welcome to the uh, Soaring the Sky podcast. Mitch, thanks for having me. Right on. Yeah, glad you could take the time. It's uh, It's been a few months since we uh, bumped into each other at the Soaring Academy. You know, glad we finally found a slice of time to hook it up and, uh, yeah, really looking forward to it. Likewise. And where we usually start is maybe just have you give us a short intro on yourself and a little flyover on your aviation journey these last years. And, uh, and then we just go from there. Well, my aviation journey started quite a while ago, 11 and a half years old. I was doing summer camps right across the street from an airport and Torrance airport, actually watching planes and helicopters take off and land every day. Well, every day I was at camp. So I was pretty enthralled by the idea of flying and also not being super competitive in s sports and not really enjoying other kind of sports as much. I was really drawn to it. Um, so I started taking lessons in Cessnas first and eventually worked over towards sailplanes because my father uh, was a sailplane pilot, is a sailplane pilot, and yeah. really wanted me to kind of branch out as soon as possible to different types of aviation and really get a, a rounded experience of flying. And, and Torrance, for our international listeners, that's um, that's in the Los Angeles, sort of the greater Los Angeles area. Yeah, and it's right in the suburbs too. So if you want to go anywhere, you better be ready to encounter some Class Bravo. <laughs> you're kind of stuck in that area. Yeah, so your, your radio work probably developed early. Um, I've, I haven't had trouble with radio communication since, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah, very, very busy, uh, very, very busy airspace yeah. down there. So it wasn't until I was 18 that I started hang gliding, not because of any uh, hesitations on my parents' side, thankfully, uh, but just because that's when I kind of discovered it. Uh, in fact, it was at Crystal Air that I saw hang glider pilots doing a cross country from Silmar 
which was maybe about uh, from Santa Clarita roughly over to uh, Crystal Air. So about maybe 50 miles, 40 miles. Um, wasn't a spectacular distance, but uh, considering the logistics of going over the backside of the mountains uh, into some more rugged terrain uh, makes that, for that a challenging cross country. So I watched them land at Crystal Air, pack up in 15, 20 minutes after their driver showed up and disappear. And, and I, I was stuck putting away this giant sail plane. I said, wait a minute, I got gypped. So from Silmar out to, to the uh, Soaring Academy, Crystal, I would imagine that was, you know, where it, it's like a prevailing west wind and is mostly a, a, a tailwind and they just go up the, uh, it's kind of the foothills um, there to, to Crystal. Is that, is that kind of how They it do, but back over in the Agua Dulce area, there's not a whole lot of land out areas. And also it's still far, it's, it's not quite inland enough to be completely isolated from the marine layer. So a lot of times over at Silmar, they will have soaring days that are particularly good because the marine layer kind of backs off and you'll get lift up to 12,000 feet right over there uh, on the local mountains. So it doesn't happen too often, but when it does, that's when you can do some really good cross countries out of there. I'm going to imagine this is what sort of July, August, September when, you know, cross country out to crystal is doable. It's pretty much the same seasons um, as sailplane flying. Yeah. The window that you get that lift and inversion or the, the disappearance of the marine layer seems to happen closer to October. So, and that's when we always make a trip out to Big Sur. So every time we go out to Big Sur, somebody says, Hey, it's going to be 12 grand at Silmar tomorrow. And we all groan and say, well, at least it's pretty up here. Right. Do you fly powered anymore or, or just not really? Once in a while, I try to keep current, but my interests and situation as far as locality to airports, familiarity with instructors and so on. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a lot cheaper and I get my flying fill, my kind of satisfaction of flying from hang gliding now that, mm-hmm. you know, I, I do the powered flying to keep current, but it's not quite, uh, a need for me spiritually. And, and you still living in Southern California or I live up in Salt Lake city now. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I'd imagine lots of yeah, lots of good uh, you know soaring and, and flying options up there. Yeah, and um, far in we have a pretty good season too. So pretty much even through the winter, as long as it's not snowing, we get some kind of flying conditions uh, just from the prevailing winds that we get out here. Cool. Yeah. So back to sailplanes for a couple minutes. Um, maybe you could tell us. A little bit more about your your, your background there, and you know, maybe a sort of a highlight or two from your sailplane days. Sure, my sailplane memories are probably some of the fondest that I have, mostly because I think I did the most growing as a pilot, uh, maturing as a pilot during that time. As you know, fourteen-year-olds can get solo certificates well before they're actually able to get a license. 
and I was right. eager to get out and build the hours and really get the experience of flying on my own and uh, enjoying that kind of solitude and decision making. So I tried to branch out there as much as I could, and that's when it took a priority over powered flying because I could go solo. It was much more fun, and it was a it was a great community out there too. I'm forever indebted to the folks over at the Soaring Academy for making it such a welcoming environment and an understanding one too, because since I had so much training and I had instructors like Dale Masters right from the start, I was taught, you know, a lot of techniques and, you know, full spoiler approaches, aggressive slips to landings. So it was something that I really attached latched onto some more of the radical flying and enjoyed a lot. Dale's pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing guy, energy management and, uh, you know, kind of the Yoda of the skies. What, when, when were you first out there? Like, like what year was that roughly? Oh, you're making me do math on the spot. That's not fair. <laughs> um, but it's been about, it's was, was essentially this when Chris and Julie were running the place or, um, I'm not sure of the exact timeline um, because I know that when I first went out there, when I was, I, I did this at about 12, it was still under the uh, control of Fred Robinson. And then I think uh, there okay. was the change of ownership and I took a little hiatus then just because this, the situation was getting a little strange there, some conflicts of uh, personality and we just took a little break uh, and then came back and, Chris had taken over at that point and was really starting to make it into a full-fledged school. So that's and yeah. that's when I went back and got my solo certificate and had uh, a couple of different planes to fly. And one of them I really loved to fly was the uh, Pilatus B4, which is an all-aluminum aerobatic uh, sailplane. And I never did serious aerobatics in it, you know, some wingovers, some I think the proper term right. for it is clove hitch, where you kind of just bury the rudder, bury the stick into the corner, and you know you do a nice, yep. big old, a uh, big yeah. quick wing over. So those that was really fun. Yeah. Um, and then just being able to play around in the mountains and just having that fine control of the glider uh, was something that I really appreciated and more suited my flying style because I was always a little nervous about going further out. Uh, and Dale had always instilled on me where he would point out the ground. He says, that looks landable, doesn't it? I say, yeah, it does. He says, you'd get really hurt if you landed there because there's so many rocks you can't see. And there's so much yeah. variation in that dirt down there that you'd be hard pressed to find a good land out area anywhere in this Mojave desert, unless you went out to El Mirage or landed on the highway. That's so true. There's, um, you know, whether there's you know, Joshua trees or, you know, just a lot of undulations and it might look good from, you know, a thousand feet, but, uh, yeah, the, the desert is pretty, you know, it's pretty unforgiving around there. So you definitely do have to, you know, kind of pick your spots and El Mirage is a, you know, that's a little bit of a haul, um, especially if you're getting, you know, low in the mountains. And so, but yeah, but it's a, it, it's a, it's where I started to, to, to learn as well. And, and it's really, it's just such a cool place because, you know, you're like a, a seven minute toe to, you know, 9,000 foot 
peaks and you've got you know you've got the the desert the high desert on on one wing and then you've got you know kind of los angeles basin on you know on the other and um and and lots of different lift you know to play with probably the only thing that crystal doesn't have is um you know is, is ridge lift um unless you're up on the top of you know the san gabriel's in certain conditions but yeah uh, it, it does but, you know everything else it is, does have ridge lift but it's expensive ridge lift <laughs> yeah exactly because it's yeah it's like a you know it's a it's a high toe to to get up there yeah wings and wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years they hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in north america and they ship globally Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. They're also now the exclusive distributor in North America for the new Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. Let's segue over to the to the hang gliders. And maybe you could kind of talk the listeners through. And, and like for me, to just to prep for this interview, I actually had to, you know, I had to do quite a bit of learning. It really just wasn't, you know, very familiar with it. So, you know, the hardware and, you know, aerodynamics and, and how you control them in flight. You know, there's obviously some very fundamental differences with with sailplanes. Yeah, just talk us through uh, some of the some of the basics on on hang gliders. I think would be interesting. Sure. Well, weight uh, hang gliders are essentially weight shift controlled aircraft, and every aircraft is weight shift controls controlled to a degree. I mean, we all have to deal with weight and balances on regular aircraft for a reason. You put too much weight in the tail and you're not going to be able to put the nose down regardless of how hard you try. So the scale of hang gliders is a lot different in the sense that just our body weight being moved into different locations, either left, right, or pulling ourselves forward in front of the glider center, center gravity or aft will allow us to bank or change the pitch of the glider. And that's essentially the controls of it really only down to two axes there because the yaw, although there are some tricks you can use to get some kind of yaw out of the glider, it's pretty much non-existent because of the nature of the glider. And for simplicity's sake too, which is really the key characteristics of hang gliders. One of the more interesting engineering problems of simplicity, weight, and cost it's amazing to see the craftsmanship and the ideas that have gone into some of these hang gliders throughout the years and how they've all kind of settled down to a relatively standard design, which is a delta wing uh, shaped wing Mm -hmm. with ribs or battens, uh, aluminum or carbon battens that give it its wing shape and a dive recovery system to basically uh, keep the glider from uh, encountering a tumble. Of course, also some performance aspects uh, or some performance upgrades to them, such as variable geometry, which um, can get into later. But 
they've evolved in such a way that they are as simple as they are as necessary because we always want that nice thing uh, on the glider. But there's that mm-hmm. distinction between uh, hang gliders and rigid wings, which um, are essentially hang gliders with D cells, carbon D cells, and they have no flex and all the controls are operated by um, spoiler ons. And it'd be really nice to have some spoiler ons on a hang glider, but then you got that much more complexity. You got five more minutes of setup time. You got another 10, you know, maybe five pounds of weight that people just aren't going to want to carry. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting, uh, progression to see the gliders and how they are managing to get such great performance out of them. Relatively speaking, it's kind of hard to talk about performance with, you know, comparing hang gliders to sailplanes. I mean, that, they're just two absolutely different leagues. Is it just kind of variations on a theme or have there just been like major breakthroughs or it's, it's just sort of optimizing, you know, things on the edges over the last decade? I would say there have been some major breakthroughs in probably before the turn of the century. Um, the biggest one and this was done relatively early on, actually was what we call the floating crossbar. So essentially, you've got two leading edges that are pushing the wings apart. And what is keeping them apart is another cross member between the two leading edges. And since the uh, there is a nose angler, the wings are swept back, uh, you can kind of make an a, uh, like a really wide A out of that. You can imagine something like that. And the bar going across that A is what we call the crossbar. Now that has mm-hmm. a uh, some f- ability to float or to shift left and right. So one of the leading edges can actually be further out or mm-hmm. uh, retracted somewhat. So there's some flex relative to the keel, which goes transverse to the direction of motion um, or is parallel with the direction of motion relative roughly. Mm-hmm. So that allows the sail to flex and warp similar to like the right flyer. And it allows mm-hmm. the glider to be much more maneuverable than just moving your weight over and waiting for gravity to do the work. Mm-hmm. Right. That's probably one of the uh, major milestones of hang glider manufacturing. And I'm sure there's, uh, I know there are people that are much better experts on this subject. But I think that in in conjunction with having a reliable dive recovery system, especially as the gliders got more and more robust and moving from 6061 aluminum to 7075 aluminum, just these, those are smaller iterations. Um, and I think hang gliders have gone through a lot of that because it's, it's a lot of trial and error and not all these manufacturers are, um, have a team of full fledged engineers on them. And now they mostly do, but especially back then it was a lot of trial and error by people that just had a great idea. Maybe touch on the dive recovery piece a little bit you know, what, what is, what does that sort of look like or how does that work? So if you can imagine a stall in a regular airplane, the only reason why the aircraft does not continue to rotate over is because you have a horizontal stabilizer in the rear that's providing some 
resisting force when the aircraft tries to rotate about the the wings when you're uh, stalling the aircraft. And for a hang glider, because we don't have that, if we get ourselves into an aggressive enough stall where the inertia of the glider rotating, trying to recover, uh, overcomes the aerodynamic forces that our, our wing uh, without a tail is exerting to try and resist that rotation, it will continue to tumble. And that's when mm-hmm. gliders start to break. So they've implemented dive recovery systems to lift the trailing edge up in the event that it the wind is trying to push the trailing edge down. It's trying to essentially flatten the wing. When you say a system, is that is that is that from a pilot input or it's just built into the It's automatic. It's just built into the design of the, the wing. Right. It's it's built into the design. And there's two there's two ways that they essentially do it. One is with upper rigging and uh, some lines that actually go to the trailing edge uh, with some really thin steel wire. Or they can have tubes going out from the leading edge and it essentially is exerting a torquing action on the leading edge. So you have to have a leading edge that's fairly stiff so that it doesn't break when it gets torqued. And so just from a pilot sensory perception side, what's, what's the visceral kind of feel, you know, between say a, you know, sailplane and a hang glider? Um, I mean, I know there's some obvious stuff that comes to mind, but I mean, you've, you've flown, you know, both for quite a while and maybe just talk, talk us through that for a couple of minutes. So the sense of flying hang gliders is probably one of the most distinguishable forms or features of flying a hang glider. The Mm -hmm. feeling of having wings on your back is often stated by pilots. And because we're flying in a prone position, that really relates to that feeling of having wings on your back. But it's also that you are now the controlling force of that glider. It's not that you're manipulating a stick or you're manipulating um, a handle. You're manipulating your entire body to control the glider. So if you move forward and you or left or right, moving your whole body to control the hang glider gives you such a unique direct feel to the wing. To me, it's it's, uh, kind of... uh, an enchanting feeling where you're so in tune with your wing that you don't feel like a separate, uh, like, like you're flying a glider. You feel very much a part of the glider. Yeah. And in, I guess, and for, you know, for people that haven't experienced that, it's probably pretty damn hard to, you know, to, to visualize or imagine what's, you know, what it's like until you've, you know, until you've actually done it. Right. I mean, yeah. um, And it's not quite like, um, at least, uh, actually I take that back. Um, uh, equestrians, people that ride horses actually comment that hang gliding feels very similar to riding a horse where you feel that it's, you have that same sense of connection. Yeah. Sort of the, the, the horse whisperer, but it's your, but it's your wing you're whispering to, and it's probably whispering back at you. It is. 
It is. And yeah, that, that, that brings up an interesting topic, but I'll, I'll hold on to it because I think we got more to come. Okay. How about talk a little bit about launch options for, for hang gliders, um, you know, kind of looking around briefly, I've seen, you know, a whole, whole bunch of different ways to get, to get up in the air, but, um, you know, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe give us a little, a little, a little flyover on that. Sure. Essentially, there's two ways to get into the air. One is by foot launching or the other is by being propelled in the air. And um, you can launch into the air with a ground-based winch, uh, as sailplanes do. You could be launched uh, via aero towing behind another ultralight, uh, something also that sailplanes commonly do. Um, another and mm-hmm. uh, interesting form of getting aloft via towing is what we call truck towing. And that's where the glider is mounted onto a truck bed that has a winch attached to it. And they gain the initial airspeed by driving down a road and the hang glider releases. The glider immediately gains altitude because of all that stored energy, converts the airspeed Mm -hmm. into altitude. And then it basically works as a payout winch where they apply some pressure to the drum and allow a certain amount of line to reel out as the glider climbs. So that's that. So what, what kind of get off altitude would you be looking at? Have you, have you done that yourself? And like, what, what kind of get off altitude is typical in that, I, in that sort of truck? Bed I haven't had too much experience with winch or truck towing. Most of my experience uh, comes from aero towing and foot launching, but I can imagine that you, uh, depending on how much rope you have and how long your uh, road is, you could certainly average um, 2000 feet, uh, perhaps more. If you- oh, whoa. That's, that's, uh, that's a lot higher than I, I was gonna, I was gonna get, I was gonna guess, you know, 500, 750 or something like that. That's, um, maybe, yeah, that's certainly, maybe a- I'm exaggerating and I'm, um, showing my weakness and <laughs> that I haven't real or lack of experience in, uh, winch towing, but, but I mean, um, on a good day, I mean, you know, you know, there's days at crystal, you could, you know, CFI does a, a, a premature, you know, release or whatever, and then finds a thermal at 400 feet and they end up at Mount Baden, you know, almost 10,000 feet. So yeah, so I would imagine, you know, so that that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Mostly you're, you're just sort of what foot launching off of a, just sort of a, like a cliff side or, or like a downslope on a, you know, like a steep hill. Yeah. Essentially we look for steep hills and, Cliff launching can certainly be done, although the difficulty factor and uh, margin of safe difficulty factor goes up, margin of safety goes down. Um, you're you're basically looking for a sweet spot in between uh, a surface that's too shallow that you can you know you run out of energy or you run out of stride before the glider takes off and a sheer cliff, which, like I said, is doable but also requires special attention and training. So mm-hmm. generally, we try to find just gradually sloping hills where we can uh, slowly accelerate into the air, maintain control, slowly allow the glider to be become loaded, use our weight shift to control the glider, and fly away from the hill. A lot of people think 
of us as jumping off of a hill, which is not the case. We're flying away from mm-hmm. the hill. And I imagine you're always flying into a, a headwind or at least a good quartering headwind or something. Yeah, the nice thing about hang gliders is you you can imagine them like a uh, truly scaled down B-52 where our bodies are that rotating main wheel and we can allow the glider to point whatever direction it needs to. So while there are safety Mm -hmm. concerns as far as crosswinds go um, from mechanical turbulence, as long as we recognize that and know that it's not going to be a factor or um, perhaps try and give some safety margin to that. We can launch mm-hmm. in 90 degree crosswinds. No problem. That's interesting. Okay. Um, and, and just kind of jumping around here for, you know, for somebody that got interested in this and was, you know, just kind of adjacently curious on what the, you know, the cost of entry is, what, what's the, you know, what are the sort of price ranges for, you know, for somebody that's looking to get a, you know, reasonably, you know, modern sort of performance hang glider wing? For a beginner glider, you're looking somewhere around $4,000. And oh, wow. that's, that's not including the harness, which can range anywhere. It's, it's for a new harness, you're looking at uh, roughly a thousand dollars. A reserve mm-hmm. parachute, which is uh, maybe eight hundred to a thousand. Uh, prices are in such flux now that it's hard to give a straight answer. But roughly about a thousand dollars, and then a helmet, which you know probably a couple hundred, depending on which kind. And, of and the helmet's what to mitigate against crashing into the to the aluminum on the on the glider, or is that for like ground like landing kind of? It, it comes into play when you potentially or and hopefully don't hit the ground. Got it. Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag portable oxygen system. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com. So remember, our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. And yeah, speaking of harnesses, I know in the pre-interview, we touched on that a little bit, but um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about you know, the harnesses and what the, what the different types are and, and just kind of a, a little bit of an introductory, you know, piece on the, on the tech sure. there. Hang gliding harnesses boil down to two categories uh, that I see. Uh, one is an open back design and one, the other is a closed or pod design. So the open back we generally refer to as cocoons or stirrup or knee hanger, something that is cradling your body but it's not fully encapsulating it. So that is a really convenient lightweight style harness that is great for beginners or recreation pilots, but you need a number of suspension points in order to make it comfortable. So they generally go hand in hand with more drag. Whereas the closed back designs, they are actually able to put support uh, hardware, either metal tubes or carbon fiber plates 
to spread out the area in which your body is supported so it's not getting pinched, so to speak, almost like somebody squeezing you. So it spreads that area out mm-hmm. for the support of the body. And then because depending on how strong you make that support system, you can have as little as a single suspension point. So it's a lot more efficient in terms of aerodynamics. Okay. You're involved in, I think we chatted, but you're involved in um, a manufacturing uh, business doing harnesses. Is that right? Yeah. We're refining some of the harnesses that we in, uh, acquired from a company called High Energy Sports. And they decided to change courses with their business model. And we were really sad to see them go. Um, so me and my business partner, Rob Cooper, approached them and said, hey, why don't we continue it on? So we realized that there's quite a bit of updating to do. So right now we're in the process of updating those designs. And those are fabricated in the, in the U.S. here? Yeah, we make them here in Draper, Utah. Cool. Well, that sounds, uh, yeah, that sounds kind of, like, kind of exciting and, and, and cool that you can, uh, you know, tie in your, your passion with picking up a, a piece of business that sounds like that's important to the community. Absolutely. And having U.S. support, I think, is also really important because especially for harnesses, a lot of these are made overseas, uh, particularly in Brazil. There's a very well-known hang glider harness manufacturer down there called Rotor that makes absolutely fantastic harnesses, but they only have one U.S. distributor. So mm-hmm. sometimes support can be a challenge, and we're trying to do our best to fill that gap. Cool. As I was watching videos, I, I just got kind of curious about, you know, if a sailplane's landing in a, in a stiff crosswind, you know, we just put in a bunch of rudder and, and you know, crab the thing onto the runway but mm-hmm. you know without that that vertical control surface are you guys just always you're you're basically just forced to kind of turn straight into wind and you're landing or or how does that work the, the landing business where you know you've you've got a line kind of picked out but the wind's not really cooperating with you how does that how does that go well the nice thing about hang gliders is that they're space that is required to land is much smaller than that of a sailplane or even a small uh, Cessna uh, powered aircraft. But we're also able to handle a lot more rugged terrain. What are we talking like? What, two, three hundred feet kind of thing? It could be, sh- it could be shorter than that. Maybe uh, a typical landing would be maybe a hundred feet or less. It depends on how much energy you carry through on your round out. But I would say yeah. on average, it's I would say it's less than a hundred feet. And, and so you, you, you basically are just yeah turning kind of turning into the wind versus trying to manipulate the wing on some kind of a line or whatever. If we have the luxury of doing that, then yes. But often I try to get people to think more about the terrain that they're landing on because sometimes uh, we have limitations as far as the terrain features Say mm-hmm. that's maybe uh, if you were to go into the wind, you'd be landing on some pretty rugged boulders, or maybe there's a cactus field over there where right. just a 10 degree crosswind would have avoided that completely. And like I was said before, that we were kind of there is the scale down B 52 where we're able to run in the direction 
of travel while allowing our glider's nose to point into the relative wind and not allow, but we don't really have a choice in the matter. So we can crab the glider such that we can land on the best area of land available up to 90 degrees. And that was actually part of my training That's um, for hang gliders, which is to land 90 degrees to the wind. And there is a lot of running involved. There, there are also advanced techniques and uh, flaring and crosswinds too to try and dissipate as much energy as possible before landing. And, and so sticking with the wind theme for a minute, what, and let's just pick a, you know, an easy example. So you're, you know, just kind of straight into a headwind. What, and I know that paragliders are, you know, pretty limited in terms of their penetration, but at, but at what point, I mean, what what's sort of the max headwind that you can, you know, safely, you know, kind of penetrate through and, 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 you know, get down before you're, you know, you're just, you're just actually getting blown, you know, almost backward. Um, it depends a lot on the performance of the hang glider and the wing loading. To give you an example for my training glider, a single surface, nice draggy floaty glider, mm -hmm. Uh, with me on it, I probably would stop having fun at about 28 to 30 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on my high performance wing, I'd probably start getting pushed backwards closer about 35, maybe even more, uh, 38, I would say at most. And we do have a lot more pitch control than paragliders. Even if we're having a difficult time penetrating, we can still come down and we can force the glider to just dive and become so inefficient because of the uh, increase in airspeed creates so much more parasitic drag that we're able to get down more comfortably. And, so, and all, all things equal is, I mean, a, a, a comfortable landing is, you know, calm or you, it, it just, you know, you'd rather just land in a, you know, like a, a, a 10 knot headwind. It depends a lot on the uh, areas that you're flying, time of day, um, weather conditions. Mm -hmm. Ideally, landing into a nice 5, 10 knot headwind would be ideal. And mm -hmm. you don't always get that. <laughs> so right, right. What, what we do, in, uh, if, if you can imagine a regular airplane landing, it's got a pretty good rollout before it actually applies enough brakes to come to a full stop. Now, mm -hmm. we're not running through that whole round out uh, most of the times. Uh, we try to slow the glider down enough that we can get a manageable run in and mm -hmm. then slow the glider down. Or we can, with precise timing, push the glider's nose out very abruptly to create a very clean stall and expose the broad side of the wing to the relative wind to slow us down quickly, mm -hmm. which is what we call a flare. So not a flare as, you know, you're coming down and you pull back on the stick to keep from hitting the runway is that it's not that kind of flare. We have a little different term. A flare is a movement or is a technique for us to come to a full stop quickly. Right. It's like you're pitching that bar forward at the end and, you know, to, to get yourself down, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a high speed stall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And sort of moving on, you know, maybe, maybe kind of take us through your, 
hang glider, you know, flying journey, you know, where, where you started, you know, what, what kind of stuff you're doing now and, and what goals or, you know, kind of reach stuff you have in mind for the next, uh, next couple of years of, of, uh, Ian and hang gliders. Okay. I started my training back in 2013, roughly with, um, wind sports hang gliding out in Silmar, California, and they have a fantastic beach training site just south of LAX at Dockweiler beach. So I had the real privilege of being able to learn there with some very wise, knowledgeable, experienced masters of hang gliding. So that's where my training started and having an aviation background it, and especially soaring background, it, I picked it up relatively quickly, but funny enough for, I would say for every hour that I spent flying off the mountain, I spent 10 at the beach, just hammering in fundamentals, having fun, doing little spotlighting contests, trying different styles of or grip positions for takeoff, um, talking about different ways of, you know, flying or reviewing a video with my instructor uh, that was mm -hmm. down there and really just having a good time at it and having that same kind of feeling like I'm really learning the fundamentals and the sky's the limit from here. So after that, um, I got my, what we call a hang three rating, which is essentially your solo cert or it's, it's basically your pilot's license, a hang two, which is, uh, the ratings go, uh, one through four. The two is kind of a solo rating, a provisional rating where you're good to start exploring more, but not quite to fully leave the nest. And I got, I, I achieved just barely, uh, from accomplishing the hours requirements, my hang three before I moved to college to Arizona. So from there, it was a little bit more sparse flying. Uh, one, because I was certainly busy, but two, it was a new flying site, which was instead of launching at 3,800 feet or 3,400 feet, uh, which is the top of Kegel Mountain in Silmar, you're now launching from 7,800 feet and landing at 5,000 mm -hmm. feet. So the site was intimidating and uh it was also a lot more logistically complicated and hang gliding in arizona did not have as big of a uh community mm -hmm. at least that i got involved into um and uh, it was more difficult because i had to beg friends to mm -hmm. drive my car down t uh you know 40 minutes after watching me take off a mountain yeah, yeah. so yeah that was where i felt like my progression in hang gliding was the most challenging. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I took a job out in Ogden, Utah, and started flying at Point of the Mountain, which is a very famous ridge soaring site and uh, consistent, smooth, and uh, local. So for me, it was about an hour drive, and I started flying quite often. So after I um, left BAE, I came back up here to start teaching hang gliding uh, with a new school called Wasatch Hang Gliding, and I still teach with them today. And having the flexibility, Wasatch Hang Gliding. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, I, yeah. I, I think I follow. I think I follow you guys on 
on uh, Instagram. Cool. So after that, I was able to start flying more regularly and having moved closer to Point in the Mountain, I was only about 15 minutes away now. And that's where I really felt like I progressed and got my hang four. I had my hang four rating for a while, but Mm -hmm. I felt like I really made that leap in progression Mm-hmm. flying at point of the mountain and flying in utah during the last three years um, and that's also when i started becoming more interested in doing aerobatics uh, which is quite a taboo thing for the hang gliding world as gliders got more high performance they were able to push the speed limits so much more easily and therefore uh, the g loading uh, could easily be past the glider's limitations and there have been a number of accidents for aerobatics in hang gliding and there's just been the stigma of it's just too much risk to even be thinking about it it's just not worth it we already enjoy this so much and we already uh, can do so many cool things with a hang glider why would you want to put yourself in that much risk at least that's the way that i was well what, um, what kind of maneuvers brought up um, hang gliding do you, do you guys I mean, it's, it's funny. I was just out a couple of weeks ago in, in uh, speaking of Arizona, I was out doing, you know, sailplane aerobatics in a Fox. And of course you can do all kinds of crazy stuff, but what, you know, what are the sort of the, the, the typical aerobatic maneuvers in, in a hang gliders wheelhouse? Basically you've got loops, which is just going straight over the top, upside down, uh, wing overs where, you're getting the glider maybe a hundred degrees over uh, in a bank. It's, mm-hmm. it's because we don't have a rudder. They depending on how you execute them, they almost look sometimes more like hammerheads mm-hmm. and climb overs, which are essentially not full fledged loops, but you're getting to the point where you're maybe 160 degrees bank and you're kind of in a roll going almost all the way upside down or passing 180, but not going straight up mm-hmm. over the top. So mm-hmm. it's essentially the combination of those threes. I've heard, I've heard and seen some other maneuvers like tail slides, which can be very risky in hang gliders. Okay. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, Go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at soaringacademy. I would imagine you're not doing any inverted or any any anything like that. I have heard in some of the older pilots, they would actually get their gliders inverted, let their feet fall down onto the glider's keel and ride it like a surfboard. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen that done personally, and it sounds absolutely crazy to me, but it also sounds kind of cool. So, all right, I'll be looking for your, um, you know, Instagram, uh, you know, posts on. No, just kidding. I got to keep it safe. But and and so, what what's kind of in your your kind of goals roadmap for the next uh, couple years with with hang gliders? I would say progressing uh, a consistent training curriculum and getting it 
out there to more people. I think, at least in my opinion, the sport is at a point where I think we just need more information out there. It's kind of been too mm-hmm. word of mouth for so long. Oh, I learned this from my instructor. I did. I do it like this because my instructor did it. We, we've kind of gotten in this rut and mm-hmm. it makes training slower and it makes students frustrated because they see so many different things or they're told so many different things by so many different people, but they're never really given a good reason or they're mm-hmm. frustrated that one person demands technique A when you were taught technique B mm-hmm. for the last three years. And it's it's like, a well, mm-hmm. sorry, if you can't do it this way, then I don't really want to teach you. So uh, yeah, interesting. Um, it's a challenge. So, and then also progressing with hang gliding and stunt flying more, doing some more filming and finally starting to get uh, a little bit more into the competition world, doing some longer cross countries. So cool. Maybe next step here, you could spend a few minutes talking to listeners about what crossover kind of cross pollination you see between hang gliding, GA, um, or sailplanes and why people might be more interested than they think they might be with what's, you know, widely, I think, perceived as a pretty dangerous sport. Well, as far as the stigma of having it be a dangerous sport, that has is a remnant from the early 70s when people were starting to build their own hang gliders and having structural failures because of poor engineering. There was, I think, one year there was like 68 deaths uh, in hang gliding. And, no, and, and by the way, I have two uncles, I think, that were that were avid hang glider pilots in the early 70s. And, and yeah, a lot of trips to the ER room, but um, probably case in point on, on that right. historical reference. And that is certainly not the case anymore. Uh, there is a risk factor still associated with it. But as much as I just uh, talked about training and how I think it should be a little bit more f- have some more information out there. It's miles, mm-hmm. miles better than what we had in the seventies. Most people took two lessons and you know, you're on your own. Now we're up to, you know, 12 to 15 on average and with much more rigor and much safer equipment, um, more docile handling equipment, uh, easier to launch, easier to land. So it's quite safe. Well, I mean, that's even like sailplane kind of back in the day, I mean, it wasn't uncommon to, to hear of, you know, people doing, you know, five, 10, you know, kind of dual flights and, and, you know, going out and, and soloing. And I, I don't think that's really yeah, the case right. anymore. And it's probably more like 25, 30, 35 flights mm-hmm. or something. And, and just a lot more, you know, instruction yeah. going on. And as far as cross pollination, I can only speak from my experience. When I saw hang gliding, I said, you know, I I love the sport of soaring. I love getting out there and really earning my flight. But I hated driving an hour and a half uh, one way without traffic to go fly a sailplane. And the flexibility and adventure of being able to bring your hang glider anywhere you want. Now, we have common launch sites that people generally have found to be safe and fly out of most often, just like we would at an airport. Mm -hmm. Um, But the portability, the expense of it was an attraction, but also kind of that excitement. I was a a bit of a daredevil 
in the sailplane world. And I, you know, in the hang gliding world, I was kind of the rigid stuffy, you know, uh, you know, come on, why don't you go, go over here and, you know, push it a little bit more. So it kind of satisfied mm-hmm. my sense of, of adventure while still making me feel that I was in control and safe enough to do this for a very long time. And indeed, my uh, I've no pilots that have done that have done aerobatics for many many years uh, and have never thrown their reserve parachute. Um, I know many hang, hang glider pilots that started in the '70s and still are alive and doing well and have maybe broken a bone once or twice, but that's in a span of 40 years of mm-hmm. flying a hang glider. And they were they're probably taking pretty risks. How many people in, in the hang glider world, you know, that you know that are doing other, you know, whether it's sailplanes or or para or anything, or is it the vast majority are you know just only doing um, hang gliding? The vast majority are doing paragliding. <laughs> it's 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 no competition, um, unfortunately, but um, and because there's. It's, it's such a quick crossover between the two. You know the fundamentals, you know the people, and um, you still retain that kind of community. Where I know a lot of people that uh, also fly sailplanes or ultralights, but it's, uh, it's not quite as much. And the type of people that tend to get interested in this sport range from many, many different areas, uh, many different walks of life. And, um, some people that, uh, I would say appreciate the little bit more laid back, uh, attitude that hang gliding has where mm-hmm. we have part one three, as far as FERs go. And the rest of it is focused on flying the glider proper, properly in safety. Um, so it's kind of like a surfer versus, a like a, a sailboat captain or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> little. And a little bit more of a surfing vibe. And I think that's, and it certainly attracted me. Um, I love flying, but um, I just don't like memorization of so many different rules. And I understand mm-hmm. the, the reasoning for it, but it takes the fun away mm-hmm. uh, to me. Well, so, and, and you'd mentioned ultralights. So I, I know another thing we'd kind of touched on in the pre-interview, um, you wanted me to ask you about, uh, part 103 and, and ultralights, um, maybe uh, just touch on that for a minute. Um, yeah, I, I see part 103 kind of in an awkward stage stage right now. Um, I don't know if you saw the accident accident report, preliminary accident report um, of the midair collision in Texas, but it was with a powered paraglider which um, is considered an ultralight and a Cessna caravan. And uh, it was double fatality and it was a very dramatic uh, crash. So, you know, this, this was the fear of pilots back in the seventies and eighties was if they, you know, had a midair with any other airplane, then that would be, that'd be it. We would just be regulated out of existence. Mm -hmm. And that has not been the case yet. But I think it kind of shows the need for us to start picking up on how we can really mitigate that 
uh, risk, especially when the skies are getting ever more crowded. I mean, drones are on the horizon too. And uh, if we start flying at lower altitudes and in places that are more sparse, we're probably going to encounter more and more. We're going to encounter more and more traffic as people start to push the boundaries of aviation in many different fields. So I think it's important for organizations and pilots and communities of pilots to start really doubling down on the technology that's out there. Um, one thing that mm-hmm. I'm starting to be a big advocate for is ADSB in receivers um, that can link up to your smartphone just so that we can have that awareness and technology mm-hmm. because it's it really is starting to get to the point where we have so much technology being implemented in aircraft. We have such a robust system of navigation um, for IFR, which by the way, in that accident, um, the Cessna caravan was on a IFR flight plan. So mm-hmm. we, we have these structures that are in place to keep everybody safe. And we're, we're kind of the, the rock in, in the middle of the road. I know that the FAA has no interest in regulating us, but there's an issue there that I see where if we don't mm-hmm. start picking up on these technologies, if we don't start becoming more aware of these uh, issues that it can come to bite us in the end. What about even something as basic as radio comms? Because I know we were out at, over um, you know, the mountains around Crystal um, back in August, and there was like four, you know, para guys that were yeah, just you know, right at you know similar altitudes and stuff. And we were trying to raise these guys on on radios. Do you guys typically use radios in flight, or not? Not really. We use two meter radios, which is on a completely different frequency. We're technically allowed to use airband, but that's also another piece of equipment that we need to bring around, which we can only use to report positions to other pilots and not really communicate with our buddy that's, you know, flying at a gaggle with us. Right. So I really, uh, thinking on it, I don't know of anybody that flies with an air airband radio when they're flying mm-hmm. a, a hang glider or a paraglider. I have not seen it yet. And I think that we should change that. But also, I think we need a little bit more of a green light and guidance from the FAA. And what are our limitations with this? At what point are we starting to break the line as far as you're not using it for safety anymore? You're using it to chit chat or you're just, you know, communicating non-essential information. You're just cogging up the airways uh, because it really puts people off. Uh, we're... The, the mm-hmm. FAA is seen as this immovable wall, uh, this really mm-hmm. kind of thing in, in the ultralight community where if the FAA is getting involved, you really screwed up. So mm-hmm. we try to s- keep away from it as much mm-hmm. as possible. And uh, I think it's really hurt us. Uh, so I, I think there's some more research, some more conversations to be had with uh, FAAs to try and figure out, hey, how can we best use this? Because I think it is important. So kind of something we always try to touch on on the pod here, um, you know, just, you know, safety um, related stuff. Maybe um, maybe we could spend a couple minutes on what are what are the, you know, what are sort of the top, you know, two or three hang glider kind of pilot mistakes that result in injuries or, or, or even worse you know, I think everybody listening 
knows kind of what scrapes, you know, sailplanes could get into with, um, you know, spins, you know, getting slow in the pattern and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, maybe you could spend a minute to, to chat about, you know, what gets a hang glider pilot into a scrape. Sure. Well, just as with all other forms of aviation, uh, 90% of um, accidents are a result of pilot error. And it really comes down to a judgment issue and how much safety factor the pilot is giving themselves. Ultimately, the first safety decision comes down to, do I fly or do I stay on the ground? And sometimes Mm -hmm. that is the mistake that gets people is they end up in a situation where they're flying in conditions that are way over their heads and they can't manage their way out of it. Luckily, I have not seen too much of that where people are flying in conditions that they shouldn't have. And mm-hmm. even those, they usually scrape away with maybe a, a botched landing or getting into a field that they had never landed in before because they got blown you know, downwind so far. Just Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. So, I mean, is it fair to say that most of the most of the real kind of injury or, or worse than injury stuff is on the the landing side of the of the business? Or, I mean, like this, you said earlier, you know, the structural failure type, you know, overloading the, you know, the wing, that's more a relic of the past. And, and it's mostly now just on, on sort of landing yeah. um, or I guess launch is a potential, you know, a botched launch. I mean, if you could just kind of rank out that, you know, kind of a, how that, how that looks. Yep. You're correct that structural failures of hang gliders is pretty uncommon now. And most of the of what I have seen as far as structural failures is a uh, improper pre-flight and they didn't catch something during the assembly. The most common accidents I see, it, it is a bit uh, hard to say which one I, I've seen more accidents with takeoffs or landings, but I would say mm-hmm. the, the most issues that I've seen people have are on landings just because there are so many ways to land a hang glider and it varies so much depending on the conditions that you're in where launching, like I said, there are more technical launches and unforgiving launches such as sheer cliffs can be quite uh, demanding. Um, But it's a little bit, I would say it's somewhat less common to see serious injuries on takeoffs. And unfortunately, what happens more on takeoffs are actually fatalities um, because of the demanding launches. If you get into a situation into a situation where you're taking off in a very demanding area, say it's a kind of a slot in between trees and you got rocks and you've got you know a cliff face that you're putting yourself at so much more risk in that situation that the mistakes are less forgiving. 
uh, I think there's probably more mm-hmm. injuries on landing because at that point you probably uh, have made it through enough of the flight to then go out into what you think is a relatively safe field, much better than a steep uh, a mountain cliff or face, mountain face. You'd mentioned before about a, a reserve shoot or a, a shoot or something. What 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 is you know what does that sort of look like and when would that come into play and and how does that work so pretty much all hang glider pilots now fly with reserve parachutes even when soaring small dunes just because it's part of our equipment and it really uh never leaves our harness mm-hmm. so it's a hand deployed parachute where it's stored in a pouch on attached to our harness and you pull a handle that is, um, or mm-hmm. to open a container that is Velcroed together or pull a Velcroed handle mm-hmm. that then opens up a folded layers of fabric that just pop out a parachute. And then you throw it away from the hang glider and it will deploy. So it's a little different than uh, like a, regular aircraft reserve parachute where it's got a spring loaded system and it actually punches the parachute out. Um, you have to throw it. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily though, throwing a reserve in hang gliding is so uncommon that it's pretty much only those that either get into the leeward side of, of a mountain into severe rotor that require it or those that, mm-hmm. um, have done failed aerobatics. Okay. And, you know, I know a thing that has, uh, you know, gotten gotten the best of, um, you know, sailplane pilots over the years is um, circling a little too close to cloud base or, you know, an overdeveloped cloud. You know, sailplane is whatever, you know, thousand pounds plus with a pilot or something. And I would imagine you guys have to be a little more careful with your kind of spacing with cloud base and how, how do you guys deal with, you know, cloud sec? And I, I know when I, you know, I've been flying sailplane and paraglider guys were going nuts. There was, you know, some pretty aggressive um, developing clouds and stuff. Maybe you could spend a minute, talk about that. So thankfully I have not been in a situation where I've gotten uh, cloud suck. Um, what was taught by, to me by my instructor was uh, to go out on a calm day and, dive your glider. So, you know, pull in and put the nose, point the nose down as much as you can and observe the rate of descent in smooth air. And if your rate of climb over a cloud, especially a, you know, somewhat uncertain looking cloud gets beyond a certain percentage of your maximum rate of descent, then you should immediately try and leave that thermal. Of course, it's comes down to a judgment factor, you know, going up 1500 feet a minute in a thermal sounds fantastic and realizing it too late could be real trouble. I've known, uh, mm-hmm. people I've, I've heard of, uh, people getting cloud suck and it actually, uh, destroyed their glider and they had to come down under a parachute. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it is a serious, mm-hmm. uh, thing. And also, um, as like, especially out here in Utah, we get gust fronts a lot. So thunder cell just dumps a bunch of rain and you've got a 30, 40 mile an hour gust of wind on the way. Yeah. That can be pretty dramatic. And just in general, 
the weather that we fly in is just it's it's another world if you think about it because uh, a 20 mile an hour wind may not be you know it's it's probably a little bit concerning uh, for a sailplane pilot for as a headwind it's not it's annoying but it's not too bad for a hang glider where our stall speed is in the teens that's over 100% of the airspeed at uh, stall or trim. So we're dealing with scales that are much more profound than uh, you would with any other type of aircraft. You have to respect the weather much more in a hang glider and spend probably more days Mm -hmm. not flying than you would most other aircraft. Hey everybody, Chuck here. Please hit the pause button and either make a note for yourself to follow up or just directly pop over to your social media or soaring forum of choice and help spread the word about this show to your friends or user groups that you know are interested in aviation or soaring. You know, we invest a lot of our time into this show and for no financial gain. We're doing this to help grow interest and participation in the sport of soaring around the world. And we can't do it without your help. Only a handful of you contribute via Patreon, but that's okay. You can help in other ways, like spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. We're sort of running a little over here, but I do have um, yeah, sort of two last bits um, I wanted to touch on. So if you could just pick maybe one, you know, one hang glider flight in you know, your, your sort of experience in these last years, what, what were the sort of highlights for you and, and what made that special? Um, I would say probably my, every flight that I've done over at Big Sur in, uh, in the coastal California has been much more than just special. It is a profound experience. And, uh, one of my first flights there, uh, we had a condor, California condor fly overhead and I watched him take a thermal and I launched and went to that same thermal and ended up having a three hour flight overlooking the entire coastline of California. Absolutely spectacular. And I would say the the flights that we did doing the drone filming was kind of the highlight of my aerobatic career so far. Um, mm-hmm. That was such a fun and exciting form of flying and really an adventure and uh, for me getting to work with people in filming. Mm-hmm. That's like an FPV drone with, yes. with like an Oculus yes. on the ground. Um, and then finally... Yeah, yeah we did that. Um, a couple months ago with uh yeah with like an FPV drone guys yeah, like yeah super super cool it's a it's a it's an entirely different visual you know perspective that's just only really become available to to the aviation world in in just the last yeah. you know few years um, and then lastly my most uh, in the cross country world I recently did my first competition in uh, Casa Grande Arizona and uh, I officially had my longest flight to date there, which was, I think, four hours and 20, maybe 25 minutes. And uh, man, being exhausted after that, but just having that sense of accomplishment and being uh, in the lead gaggle with some of these expert pilots for the first third of of the flight was really just a privilege. So so on cross country and especially, well, Arizona, I imagine it's more, I mean, how... Do you hydrate? Do you have a camelback or? Oh yeah, we um, carry water. Are you, you know, are you, are you taking a pee up there, sort of thing, or how does how does? I mean, I know cross country and a glider, 
hydration and you know get pee tubes and all these kind of things you know how does that how does that work in a hang glider it's essentially the same since the harnesses have uh the pod harnesses that you normally be racing with have a zipper going down uh the length of your body uh on the front you can just unzip and relieve mm-hmm. yourself but uh yeah and um water usually people carry maybe uh one of the medium sized camelbacks um you're kind of sipping because you want you don't want to take on too ma- too much weight um so a lot of prehydration is important yep all right cool so uh, yeah. So how we kind of wrap up every, every show is, um, you know, give guest pilot a chance to, uh, you know, give a shout out, you know, recognize significant people, you know, in their aviation journey, you know, family, friends, instructors, competitors, you know, whatever. So yeah, go. Um, well, as you know, having started from such a young age, uh, I'm indebted and privileged to have the parents that I do. And uh, I love them very much for that. So, of course, first people that I shout out to because uh, I wouldn't be here without them. And as far as instructors, uh, the most pivotal people in my instructing career have been uh, Dale. One of them is Dale Masters, uh, I would say, uh, played a very significant role in uh, my sailplane learning. Um, For powered flying, Mickey Holton, who is uh, teaching tail dragger uh, instruction out of Torrance Airport with his Citabria, uh, a real s- stick and rudder instructor. And mm-hmm. in the hang gliding world, I, I owe all of my knowledge and fundamental training to uh, a very special instructor, Greg DeWolf, who spent many, many hours with me at the beach and always kept things fun and interesting. And also Joe Greblo, who is uh, still teaching occasionally. And he, he made hang gliding teaching into a science. It wasn't just this word of mouth. And he's, he really is what has inspired me to become the instructor that I am today. Fantastic. Well, Ian, this has been a, uh, yeah, just a real pleasure and um, yeah, just fascinating um, interview. And I think for a lot of our listeners, this is, you know, this is all kind of new, new ground, well, air, new air for us to, to sort of, to sort of soar through and really appreciate you taking the time and this has been a you know this has been a you know just a, it's a great you know pleasure to talk to you and uh happy soaring my man happy soaring it was really fun getting to share my experience uh so l- lets me relive a lot of it which there's so much joy in soaring all right well thanks ian and uh you know we'll uh we'll catch up with you on the other side of the rainbow we'll do see you guys there Hi there, Sergio from Sorry Master here. Everyone wants to become a better pilot. So uh, I've prepared five tips to help everyone achieving this. The first step is to study meteorology for soaring. Top pilots have a great understanding of meteorology, learn how to analyze forecasts, compare different models and work on your sky reading skills. And always practice identifying the energy lines when flying. The second tip is to analyze your flights. There are many softwares available for soaring analysis nowadays. Numerically analyze your flights uh, in order to determine the percentage of time spent turning, your achieved cross-country speed, 
number of thermal tries, see how effective your cruising technique and thermal selection have been, and keep a track record of your achieved performance. The third tip is to keep a record of your lessons learned. Uh, after a training flight, take some time and write down the strong points and your weak points of the flight that has just ended. Don't let those lessons learned fade away in your memory. Write them down as soon as you get back home. The fourth tip is to commit yourself to continuous improvement. Read your gliding notes before every flight for you to remember what you did right and what you did wrong your past flight and avoid repeating the same mistakes, you see how fast you are going to improve. And the last tip, there is no better training than flying. Keep a training schedule for both virtual flying and real flying. I wish you all great flights guys. For more tips, follow me on Instagram at sorrymaster or check my website, surreymaster.com. Thank you, Sergio, for those great tips. Always enjoy what you have to share with us here on the pod. And thank you for hanging out with us here. We look forward to having you join us next time for another soaring adventure. And don't forget about that awesome recording tool we have told you about. We have there on our website. It makes it possible and super easy to leave your soaring story. We're always looking for good soaring content here on the podcast to share with our audience. And no worries. You can remain anonymous if you like. We just want to hear those flights you have had. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a Glider Pilots podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.